1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to put your brains to work a little bit this morning, and it's not a bad thing. I'm going to give you some synonyms for a word, and let's see if you can guess it and how quickly you can. It's okay if you don't, because these synonyms are often taken for a lot of different words. So let's see if you can catch it. Cinnamon. Cinnamon. (laughs) A synonym is a word that means the same thing as another word. So let's see if we can connect these dots together, all right? Should be fun. Here are the words. The words are embrace, respect, submit, acknowledge, honor, know, recognize, believe, receive, espouse, and welcome. Anybody know what the word is that would be synonymous with all of them? How about I give you the antonyms, the opposite? Try this. The opposite is refuse, dishonor, disrespect, reprobate, disbelieve, or reject. Anybody got it now? Mm, those those aren't synonyms for, synonym for Christian. Huh? No. It's one of the synonyms. Welcome? No, but... Anybody else have another shot at it? It's not a difficult word. We say it a lot. The word is accept. When we accept something, we honor them, we embrace it, we respect it, we submit to it, we acknowledge it, we know that, or accept is a type of knowing, recognize, believe, receive, espouse, and welcome that, which we accept. All mean the same. But I wanted to point this word out to you and the antonyms for it more than the synonyms because often we don't see the opposite of something as the way to understand it better. But in this case, I think we do. And the words are refuse. If you don't accept something, you refuse it. If you don't accept it, you dishonor it. If you don't accept it, you disrespect it. If you don't accept it, you reprobate it. And reprobate does not mean you're a reprobate. It means uh, uh, ungodly or calling it uh, a reprobate mind type thing. And if you don't accept something, you disbelieve it. And the last one is if you don't accept it, you reject it. Right? And so a lot of these things are connected to that word, but there is another synonym that is, or excuse me, antonym, and that's to spurn something. It wasn't in any of the lists, believe it or not, but it also means the opposite of accept. I was reading in the news this week, and occasionally I just read the headlines just to see what's going on, 
And one of these uh, special interest headlines said, Stop beating yourself up. It's not as hard as you think to do this. And then it was an article about improving yourself in many different ways. But when I read that, I heard it differently in terms of today's message. That we need to stop beating ourselves up. And I don't mean just over certain things in our life, but literally our own inner voice that tells us we're no good. The own voice inside that says we, we, we can't get it. Our inner critic that when we do something, it's always saying we didn't do it good enough. Or you could have done it differently. Always second-guessing the things we do. Do you have that voice sometimes? Do you know the harshest critic you'll ever face is probably the one inside your head? It's not very friendly. Mine sometimes tells me that I should have said things differently or I shouldn't have said those things at all. Hardest thing to take back is something you've said because you've already said it. You can't pull it back. It's not like taking something back to the store where they'll give you a full refund and no questions asked. If you take back something you said, there's questions asked. Why'd you say it in the first place? But our inner critic keeps pounding away at everything that we do or say or at what somebody else does or says. And we become very judgmental and harsh about the people around us. Maybe you have that kind of one where they shouldn't treat people like that or they shouldn't talk like that or, or they shouldn't look like that or they shouldn't act like that. Maybe you have that inner critic that is harsh and judgmental towards others and when we share it with them, we also probably wish we could have taken that stuff back too. But the reason I say all this is because I was thinking about what Jesus Christ went through for us. And if you remember in the story, at Calvary, when He's going with the cross, there's a man following from a distance up until a few minutes before that named Peter. All the rest of the disciples, save for John, have already left. But it's interesting because less than 12 hours previous, they all said we would die for you. We'll all follow you to the death. Except for their own. <laughs> Must have meant, we'll follow you to the death as long as we don't have to die. That's kind of what it sounds like, doesn't it? I'll follow you, Lord. I'll do whatever you want as long. I'll even follow you to the death as long as I really don't have to die for you. And that's kind of what they did. He was rejected, dishonored, refused, disbelieved, and spurned by His disciples. Now, I don't think if they were questioned, whether they would say they loved Him or not would be a question. It's whether or not it was safe to. Whether it made sense to in the moment. Whether it was risky. And i got to tell you something. When I began to think about what Jesus was going through and all the different aspects of it, I began to understand something that I hadn't seen before. And I want to tell you that 
Today's communion, I think, is going to be a very special moment. There is a moment on the night which Christ is betrayed that something happens that we don't understand. I say we don't understand because it's not familiar to us. This morning, I'm going to help it be more familiar. I want to share with you what Jesus was talking about in John 14 when He says, I go to prepare a mansion for you. If it were not so, I would not have told you. When I go, I will come and I will receive you to Myself. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be afraid. He offers at this time a cup of wine. Do they have to take the cup of wine? Do they have to drink it? When Jesus offers us this morning His body and blood, do we have to take it? We don't, do we? Let me tell you what this was symbolizing so you'll understand the whole process this morning of communion and what this spurning of Jesus was like. In that day and time, there are still some of these traditions around today, but in that day and time, when a young man saw someone he wanted to marry, he didn't go up and start dating her and then ask her to marry her. It's not how it worked. As a matter of fact, they didn't even hang around each other. He just saw somebody he wanted to marry, either prearranged or from a distance, and he took wine, a cup of wine over to her house. And he offered her the cup of wine saying, will you be my betrothed? Does she have to say yes? Doesn't even know him, does she? <laughs> might have seen him around, might have observed it. Could be a contractual marriage where families say their children are going to marry. But she does not have to accept the cup of wine to accept him and his proposal. But if she does, hear this carefully, he enters into a contract where he does all the work. All she has to do is get ready for the wedding day. But he has to do something after that cup of wine is accepted. He's got to go to her father. This is going to sound kind of bizarre, but it's how it worked. He asks her, Father, how much to marry your daughter? After he said, I'm going to. Not before. After he says yes and she says yes. Then he says, okay, what's the price? We don't do it like that. We go, how much is it before I buy? Let me test the merchandise out. Let's date a while. Same with a car. We test drive it. Then we ask, how much is it before we commit? He committed before he knew the cost. So the father says, this is the dowry. And if his daughter is very valuable, it's going to be large. And in this case, the dowry was offered that it would cost you your life And he said, well, I've already said yes. So I'm going to do it. Because I've drunk the cup with her. I'm committed. 
It wasn't something you backed out of and they let you live. But He offered the dowry of His life. But it wasn't something that He would offer right away because what He would do at that moment is He would have His friends gather after the dowry was set, not necessarily paid, but set, and His friends would gather together and they'd get a loud uh, shofar. If you're not sure what a shofar is, it's like a ram's horn. It's a trumpet for, for us. And they would blow the trumpet. And this would be the first trumpet sounding for the wedding feast. For the wedding. And what it would do, all the people would shout and celebrate and say, there's going to be a wedding. This man has offered a dowry for a woman and we don't know who she is. But our friend's getting married, so let's celebrate. Why don't they know who she is? Because he's never with her until he gets married. And when he's getting married to her, she has a veil over her face. So you can't see who he's marrying until after the wedding is over. Pretty interesting, isn't it? It's a lot different than what we're used to, but I think it's fascinating. So they have the first trumpet sound. There's going to be a wedding. She said yes. Alright. He goes over to her after she says yes and the father sets the diary and says, Alright, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you in my father's house where we will have the marriage ceremony. They do it in the temple. They did it at the father of the groom's house. And he had to build a, a chupa uh, if you're not sure what a chupa is, it's like a tent or a little building after they met on the wedding day, they would go in and consummate the marriage. Now you say, uh, Pastor, you don't mean what I think you mean by that, do you? And I would say, absolutely I do. And they're in there seven days. Seven days. You say, well, that's a long time to consummate. Well, you don't understand yet. This starts on Tuesday. They don't come out till the following Monday. But not only that, inside that chupa, we think of, oh, it's a little place they're going to lay down. No. There has to be food and provision for the entire week ready ahead of time. It's got to be ready because it's going to be there in there that long. Then you say, well, that's a kind of a crazy wedding. They just had a wedding. Now we don't get to see the bride and groom. Oh, what you don't understand also is while they're in the chupa, Everybody else is celebrating for a week in a party. It is a week-long celebration feast. Now today, they've changed that to just three days in today's uh, tradition. But back then, it was a week. So, they would go into the chupa on that day. But before all that could happen, he also had to build on to his father's house the place they would live when they were married. It was connected to the Father's house. They still do that today in that culture. So he tells the bride, I have to go make things ready. Now here's where you might recognize something that you've heard before. I don't know the day or the hour that all things are ready because my Father will tell me when it's ready. You see, an anxious young man could just throw up a tent and say, let's do it now. 
I'm ready now. But his father had to approve of what his works were for this new bride. He had to approve of the chupa, the provisions, and the home that they would establish because it was part of the family that they would live in and grandchildren would be raised in and future grandchildren would be raised in that home. It had to be perfect. So the groom says to the bride, future bride, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. When it's ready, I will be back for you. And I will come and I will take you and receive you to myself. And we will celebrate our union. He was never alone with her after that. Talk about a crazy kind of way to marry. You don't even know who you're with. Well, that first week you're going to find out how well you get along, aren't you? <laughs> For sure. Because you don't get to come out of the chupa. <laughs> For a week. <laughs> That'd be a mess. But, but the reason I say all this is because he has to go make things ready. Now, here's the interesting thing. Once everything's ready, it usually took at least one year to build it. To get it ready the way the, the, the groom's father said it would be alright. Now, now you might go, okay, so then there's a date and time set for the wedding. No, there's not. <laughs> That's what's funny. As soon as everything's ready, he goes at night and gets her. You say, well, that's kind of weird. How's everybody going to be prepared you know, to take off work and do all this other stuff? Don't get me wrong here. They don't know when it's going to happen. Nobody knows but the Father. And here's the neat thing about this. And ladies, I, I'm glad we don't do it like this now. But they're supposed to take the bride, steal her from a father's house in the middle of the night. Slip out. Now you say, what do you mean by that? I mean, well, how's she going to know that he's coming? On the night, usually around midnight, when everything's ready, the father says, Son, everything's ready. You've done well. Go get your bride. At that point, they gather all the groom's friends on that night. So it's, the celebration isn't during work hours. The beginning of it, that is. And they blow the last trumpet for the wedding. And it says, son, go get your bride. And all the wedding party, all the men that are with him, his friends, all go shouting so that she can hear it from a distance. So she can put on her wedding garment and grab her things from her father's house and all the things necessary for that marriage and be ready with the light lit so they take the right person. He goes in, grabs her, or takes her in her wedding gown with the veil on, and they proceed to the place where the chupa is. This is what happens. Now, if you're not picturing this real well, it's a loud procession in the middle of the night. The only thing that the father of the bride does is checks to make sure it's the right guy taking his daughter. <laughs> Other than that, he stays out of it. But all this noise stirs people up in this commotion and they all see what's going on. And then the next day, through the evenings of the next seven days, they gather together to eat, to make merry, and wait seven days in celebration mode 
usually in the evenings. So they would celebrate that wedding every day, come into that same place, and the groom had to provide the food for them, the drink, and he couldn't be there, so he had to have other people to watch it. Now you say, hey, is that why they run out of wine in John when at Cana in Galilee? They ran out of wine and Jesus turned the water into wine. Let me tell you something. It doesn't say that the groom said, go get the wine. It said the one who's running and hosting the wedding. The host. There's a host in place while they're in the chupa. The bridegroom and the bride don't know what's happening in this wedding scenario where Jesus turns the water into wine. But they run out of wine. And so that means the groom was ill-prepared. Which brings him shame. So when he comes out, he's going to be shamed because there's nothing there. But Jesus turns the water into wine and restoring honor. And one of the guests there says, this is the best for last. That you have brought out the good wine. Last. Now you understand why there had to be so much wine. Do you know how much wine Jesus made? 120 gallons. That's how much more they needed for this celebration. That's a lot of wine, folks. Talk about a party. Goodness. So, they have this wedding uh, before the feast can begin. They go into the chupa, the groom and a new bride, and they stay there seven days, right? This is what's happening. Consummating the marriage the groom is feeding and loving for and providing for his new bride. He is. The first thing he does in there is he takes a cup of wine and he says, this cup celebrates the union of us, my God. This cup is the second cup I share with you. The first cup is when she says yes. This next cup is the consummation of the marriage. This second cup is the cup that Jesus offers us at communion in the chupa. The dowry that He pays for His bride in the case of Jesus Christ must be paid before the wedding. Jesus Christ had to pay His life. And for a moment, doesn't it seem kind of backward? If I'm going to give my life to marry her, how can I be with her? I'm going to be dead. <laughs> what a high price to pay. I get to marry her at the cost of my own life and I have to die before I get to marry her. <laughs> Just doesn't seem right. But who do you think he pays the dowry to. Do you think it's to your dad? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read the following. And I think I have it on the screen for you. Verses 5 through 7.
There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom, a dowry for all to be testified, which means paid in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is what the Apostle Paul says. So Christ gave himself a ransom because the bride was not welcome in his father's house. How can I marry her if she's unworthy? Now, you might say, what are you talking about? Because according to this passage, we are not children of God until Christ makes us children of God. And therefore, that means we are orphans. Scripture even says we are orphans in this world without Christ. So there is no father for an orphan for him to go to. So he has to go to his father and say, what can I do? What can I give to marry this one? And the father says, your life. He says, I'll do it. If she can be in your house forever, I'll do it. I will give my life for her to be worthy to be in your home. You just recognize that my life as your son paid the price for her to have full access. I'll pay it. Not an easy thing to do. But when the dowry was to be collected... Jesus gathered with His disciples in the upper room. And He said to them this in Matthew. He took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is My blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I will not drink this cup with you until I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. Let me put this back to the wedding scenario. He says, when we're in my father's chupa that he's approved, that I'm making, we will have this together. But he's already telling her this, knowing the dowry is his life. That he knows that he will be crucified his life taken, and yet he will still be able to marry her after he has died. He trusts his father to raise him. But it can be a scary proposition for Jesus. And it was. It was real tough because he knew that his bride was going to reject him at Calvary. As a matter of fact, before it all happened, he praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when they were about to arrest him. He says, Father, take this cup 
What cup? This cup I'm about to share in the new kingdom. Take it from my hands. Because it's almost too much for me to bear that I have to give my life in uncertainty of knowing that I will share it again in the kingdom. But I still say to you, Father, not my will, yours. That you can still do it. That I trust you. Even though I know my betrothed will not be there for me. When I pay my dowry, she will reject me. She will spurn me and refuse to come. She will refuse it the second time. When Jesus gave thanks over the cup on that last night with the disciples, He said something that has been repeated for centuries. The same prayer over every cup in the Jewish tradition that is said. It's a Jewish blessing that has not changed in thousands of years. And here it is. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Is this not what I say when I hold the cup up? Thank you, God, for the cup. Poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the fruit of the vine. On the same night that he says that, in the same sitting at the same meal, he also says, I am divine. You are the branches. You are the fruit of the vine. You are my fruit. And so when he holds the cup up, he says, I thank you for the fruit of the vine. But he's looking at the disciples who are the fruit. When Christ offers you communion, He's saying, I thank God for you. This cup symbolizes what I'm doing for you. It's a wonder that He could say it with full confidence that in three days after that, He would do it again with them. But Scripture tells us there's a day coming. Has not yet arrived. When the last trumpet shall sound, and those who belong to Christ Jesus will be gathered together and joined together in a great marriage feast. At that point, the groom will pour out for us His bride the last cup and say, we consummate this marriage now. Do you spurn me or receive me? Do you join with me or do you reject me? 
And he's not going to ask that as a question of which we have a choice at that moment. <laughs> because the choice will have been made before that moment ever arrives. Because only those who are invited will be there. Our inner critic tells us that we're not good enough or others aren't good enough. It tells us that this world isn't fair and life is tough. But it also should begin to tell you that Jesus Christ changes things. That life is different when He comes. That you are a new creation and you have a new mind in Christ Jesus, a new heart. This morning, we are going to celebrate Holy Communion. And I have to tell you that when Jesus Christ paid the dowry, He paid it in very certain, specific conditions. And this for they. Number one, that His death would be the only requirement for His bride to be welcomed into the home. Number two, that no other way would be allowed but His way. Number three, that nothing that the bride could do could eradicate that dowry. And the last one, that as long as the bride enters into that covenant relationship, it is a solid, binding, eternal thing. Do you, do you catch the imagery here? That you are the bride of Christ when you say yes to Him. It does not matter if you think you're worthy enough. The blood of Christ has invited you and says you are. Your life is redeemed. You were an orphan without Him. But His death gives you access to full rights and privileges as family. You are considered a child of the living God brother or sister of Jesus Christ with full rights and heirship that Jesus has. All of that. And there's a responsibility on your part. It's to never assume you did it on your own merit or that you had anything to do with it because your groom is the only one who can make it happen. Jesus is the only one who can make the way. There's many, many different things I could share with you this morning about how all this works. But let me just say it this way. You're not rejected. No matter how you feel, no matter what people have told you about your relationships and, and your standings, either in the church or outside of the church, whether you're worthy or not to be in God's presence, you are not rejected or spurned. You are treasured. Before you said yes, Jesus said, I'm willing to give whatever it takes for you to be with me. To His Father. And by offering the cup to you, He's telling you it before He even asks the conditions. You are wanted. Needed, cherished, accepted, respected, 
embraced. You are acknowledged, honored, known, recognized. You are believed. You are received. You are welcome in Jesus Christ. And so I say to you what Jesus would one day say to us all this morning. Come and drink of the cup. All things are ready. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. You you chose a marriage. Something that this world has begun to take for granted when they don't do it in honor of you. They believe it's optional to stay. But when you give the dowry, there's no turning back. Not for you. So, Heavenly Father, this morning I ask that you would recognize our need for you. And our need to know that no matter what we say or what we do or what we think of ourselves, it doesn't stop the fact that we are welcome. No matter how good we think we are, how bad we think we are, or whether we need you or whether we think we don't, you say we're welcome. And Heavenly Father, I'm asking this morning that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know this, that they would know it now. And not have to spurn themselves or feel 